Well, greetings to all my called out family across the U.S. and beyond. My name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. The title of the current series you're listening to is Choose Your Jesus Wisely. This is episode number 11 of the series, and the title of the topic of today's episode is Paul's Instructions to the Galatians. Before we get to that, I wanted to let you know about the progress of my latest book titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. That book is currently in the hands of a dozen or so beta readers who are and will be providing me with the feedback I need before I make any final changes to the content. The book's going to be self-published. You know, I'm doing it myself. So there's still a lot of work to be done. After the beta readers are done, the focus will be on the final editing for typos and grammar and that sort of thing. Then there's the process of formatting, like making sure all the titles and subtitles are where they're supposed to be. And then finally, I have to get a draft copy to read the whole thing. Well, that's not the end of things. It would, it would be nothing short of a miracle if after receiving the draft copy, I didn't find some mistake within the first 15 minutes of reading it that caused me to fix it and uh, get a whole new draft and start over again and read the whole thing over again another time. And it's like 548 pages long, so it's a lengthy process. All of that to say that optimistically, unless it's picked up by a regular publisher and they just like crank it out, it'll probably be sometime in the fall of this year that the book will finally be available. The good news is that my friend Marty uh, has already completed the artwork for the cover, and it's really cool. You can see it on the Doug Hooley Ministries Facebook page if you're interested. It's a picture of the inside of a small church, like a country church, And the front wall has been removed, like blown out, apparently by Jesus, who is walking away with his back (laughs) to the church. He's walking away from the church, which all graphically suggests that we, you know, follow him. It couldn't represent the contents of the book any better. Well, as I get a little further down the road with that project, I'll probably do a special edition episode of the Called Out Cafe to talk about the contents of the book. I am tentatively planning on the next series to be based on that book after I complete this current series, uh, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. But we'll see what God has planned. I personally believe this book I'm working on to be the most significant and important work God has ever had for me to do to, to date. Well, I hope you're benefiting from this podcast. I hear from a couple of you fairly regularly who seem to be, and I love hearing from people. I currently would liken listenership to be that of a small community of believers, you know, like a small church. I get stats on where listeners are located, and that's always super interesting for me to see. It used to be my home state of Oregon that had the highest number of listeners, but that's rare now for them to be the highest number. I know people in Ontario, Canada and Argentina are regularly listening now. Anyway, if you're benefiting from this podcast or being blessed by it in any way, just go ahead and drop me an email or Facebook message me and let me know. Please let me know where you're from, and if you have time, let me know a little bit about you. I am always blessed and encouraged when I hear from you. And if you are blessed yourself by the podcast, please suggest to others that they try it out and give it a listen. Well, Paul said, 
Indeed, when you did not know God, you served gods that by their very nature do not exist. And now, after you have known God, or rather being known by God, why do you turn your back again to weak and miserable principles which you desire to again serve? That's found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. If there is one book in the New Testament that makes the case for staying true to the gospel and recognizes that Christians can get off track to the point where they're following and worshiping false gods, it's what may be the oldest document contained in the New Testament, the book of Galatians. Galatians concerns one, one's choice of either following the authentic truth of the gospel or following one's own self-righteous-based false version of the gospel. Concerning what the Apostle Paul understood to be at stake in the book of Galatians, Dr. Jack Crabtree writes this, The person who has a heart that does not resonate with the truth of the gospel will be condemned to destruction. This is typically evidenced by either his rejecting the gospel outright or by his willfully misconstruing the gospel and believing an altered version of it that is more to his liking. As we 21st century Christians read the book of Galatians or sit in pews and listen to sermons based on it, we sometimes fail to make the connection with what's happening in the church today. Many view Galatians as a nice bit of history, documenting the rough start that Christianity had, as though the issues Paul was specifically addressing were all subsequently worked out. Instead of focusing on what Paul was writing about throughout the entire book of Galatians, they instead glean many lessons from the text, like a character study of Paul and how it would benefit Christians to imitate him, how to restore your brother who has fallen into sin, or being heirs to the kingdom of God, or reasons for paying your pastor a salary, those kind of things. That is all completely missing the point of Galatians. Galatia is a region that was in what's now central Turkey, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians in about 49 AD should cause every Christian today to stop and consider whether they may be engaging in similar behaviors as the Galatians. Scripture gives no indication that Paul's words to the Galatians permanently fixed the problems he was seeking to remedy, that of buying in to false teaching, which said one needs to follow the law to be considered righteous in the sight of God. The problem only spread Things only got worse in the early church, way worse. History, in observations of the current state of the church, indicates that Paul's advice on this topic is more relevant and important than ever. Just a few years after Paul made a successful missionary journey to the region of Galatia, he learned of some very troubling news. Judaizers were a sect of Jewish Christians who believed it was necessary to follow the Mosaic Law to be acceptable to God in addition to recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Judaizers, also known as the Circumcision Group, had found their way to Galatia and had convinced the church in that region that this very wrong teaching was true. Well, to be clear, it wasn't entirely unreasonable for the Judaizers to believe what they did. The first Christians were almost all Jewish. Those that believed in Jesus believed that he was their Jewish Messiah who had come to fulfill the promises made in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Just because their Jewish Messiah had come did not in their minds mean that they needed to cease living according to the law. They believed Jesus was the Messiah who presided over the law. Long story short, their beliefs were based on partial information. Paul's letter to the Galatians fills them in on how the beliefs of the Judaizers were flawed. Acceptance of the gospel as presented by Jesus and his original hand-picked disciples is an all-or-nothing enterprise. You can't add to the gospel as they dictated it or take away from it. Paul informed the Galatians that any change in the gospel is a reversal of the gospel. The good news then becomes the evil status quo. The Galatians were mainly Gentile or non-Jewish believers. Paul warned them that to follow the law was the very same as following the false gods that they once believed in. In Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 to 9, Paul pronounced a curse on those who would teach something other than the authentic gospel that he had previously conveyed to them. This is because the stakes are so high. Those who accept and live by a different gospel are eternally condemned. Well, what follows now is not meant to be a comprehensive expository discussion on the book of Galatians. Time only permits me to briefly comment on the portions of Scripture in Galatians that directly pertain to the subject at hand, that of creating and worshiping false gods. Even then, time's only going to allow me to briefly comment on the highlights and not to provide extensive justification for the conclusions that I've came to. But I want to encourage you to check out thoroughly what I'm saying here. In Galatians 1.6, we read that Paul was amazed at how soon the gospel had come under attack by, quote, false brothers, unquote, who had infiltrated the church. A false brother, one who claims to be a Christian but is not, is a non-brother. They're an outsider who, although may hold some common beliefs, have nothing spiritually in common with the authentic child of God. They are not a part of the body of Christ. Yet, because of the beliefs they did hold in common with the Galatians, they were being allowed to participate and teach within a church started by the Apostle Paul. Paul said these false brothers were there with the intentions of bringing them into bondage by placing a kind of a things to do to be holy list on them. Human manufactured holiness is no holiness at all. It is unholiness. Paul essentially referred to the Galatians as turncoats or deserters of the gospel when he used the Greek word metathemenos in chapter 1 verse 6. Just as they would have turned from worshiping pagan idols to the gospel, they had now turned from the gospel in favor of a false gospel, turncoats, deserters of the gospel. Paul uses very strong language in his letter to the Galatians, like I just pointed out. He twice pronounces a curse on anyone who would preach a different gospel than the gospel of grace which he preaches. This may seem kind of harsh today in a world where relative truth prevails and holding a strong opinion on anything is frowned on. However, this should serve to demonstrate exactly how important adherence to the gospel of grace is. Pastor and Bible teacher and author John Stott made the following comment about Paul's curse. He wrote this, As for 
actually desiring false teachers to fall under the curse of God and be treated as such by the church, the very idea is inconceivable. But I, ad I venture to say that if we cared more for the glory of Christ and for the good of the souls of men, we too would not be able to bear the corruption of the gospel of grace. You know, just like Paul could not bear it, so he cursed these guys. Paul presents a gospel that does not aim to please humans. Being human, pastors are often concerned with pleasing people in, the, in their congregations. Of course, love dictates that one would never intentionally set out to upset or offend anyone if that was the end goal. However, sometimes an upsetting, offensive shakeup is in order when a person is clinging to ideas that threaten their eternal status. In fact, it's the loving thing to do. One can see by the tone of Paul's letter to the Galatians that he was far more concerned with relaying the truth than he was with sparing anyone's feelings. The gospel is not accurately reflected in a church which sets out to please people. Being well thought of in the community is great, so long as the gospel is not compromised. Being both popular and true to the gospel is really tough, if not impossible, to pull off. There's so many ways to compromise the gospel when attempting to popularize it. This is easily understood when one considers that the world, and what is appealing to the world, is on the opposite end of the spectrum than what is pleasing to God. Well, to clarify what I mean by that just a bit, the book of Genesis informs us that God created this world we live in and on, and he declared it to be good. It's good to enjoy and use what God has declared to be good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not the world of the Gnostics where matter is bad and spirit is good. God declared his world to be good. So when I speak of the world, I speak of the human and Satan-based systems that have corrupted that which is good about the world and that will dominate it until Jesus returns and straightens all that out. So there is nothing absolutely nothing wrong with music, coffee, <laughs> companionship, and making people feel at home. I love all those things. But if you're trying to attract people to a church with popular sounding music, trendy coffee bars, all sorts of services, and promises of companionship, you're doing nothing more than running a marketing campaign. I've read so many things from pastors talking about using these kind of techniques with the best of intentions. But it's like saying, let's get people in the door so they'll see how much fun and how normal and accepting and hospitable and friendly we are. And maybe they'll want to be Christians too. <laughs> or if we can only lure them to church with our good works in the community, they'll be exposed to the gospel. And surely they'll also want to follow Jesus. Well, I got to say, if your aim is to attract those who seek coffee, cookies, and companionship to church, you will attract those who seek coffee, cookies, and companionship. But if your aim is to attract those who seek Jesus and the bare naked truth of his gospel, <laughs> that's who the Holy Spirit, if it is his will, will send you.
Those who believe attracting people to church with worldly comforts and entertainment is anything new are off by at least a few decades. In the 1940s, A.W. Tozer wrote the following on the topic. I don't think it's any coincidence that Pastor Tozer uses the imagery of a golden calf idol as he makes his point. Anyway, he says this. Those Christians who belong to the evangelical wing of the church have over the last half century shown an increasing impatience with things invisible and eternal and have demanded and got a host of things visible and temporal to satisfy their fleshly appetites. It's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. This has influenced the whole pattern of church life and even brought into being a new type of church architecture designed to house the golden calf. Any objection to carryings on of our present golden calf Christianity is met with the triumphant reply, but we are winning them. Tozer continues, and winning them to what? The work set out by Jesus for the authentic child of God to believe in the one whom God sent, Jesus, the Messiah and Son of God, is reinforced by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. There he writes this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith or belief in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith or belief in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. There's nothing anyone can do to be saved or justified other than believing in Jesus, the Messiah. The Galatians, like many in the church today, because of false teaching, has started relying on more than their belief in Jesus to be justified before God. Paul is attempting to bring them back around to the truth. Religion can't save you. Religion is an obstacle to salvation. <gasps> if living according to religious practices, the law, is what it takes to be holy and pleasing to God, surely Paul and his former Pharisee associates would have been on the right track. None were more pious than the Pharisees. Yet Paul says that none shall be saved by doing the work of following the law. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul emphasizes this by saying that if anyone can be saved by following the law, then Jesus died in vain. In other words, apart from completely and only relying on the work of believing in Jesus for one's salvation, Christianity would be completely worthless and unnecessary. So many in church leadership today say that faith in Jesus is all it takes to be saved or justified, just like what I just said. But then they subtly reintroduce the law or religion to the salvation formula. Just like in Galatia, false teachers reintroduce the law by bringing it in through the back door. They say that even though salvation comes through grace alone, if you're really a Christian, there are several works that you can and will engage in. Several things that you will do. For example, works such as regular church attendance, giving money, 
and serving the local church, volunteering, and living a sinless life. And that if the evidence of those works are not present in your life, then you must not be an authentic Christian. So, if you really are an authentic child of God, hadn't you better start acting like it? Don't you want to be pleasing to God? Don't you want to follow the commands of Jesus like he said his true followers would do? Well, congratulations. I'll talk about this in the next episode, but you have just now been Christian Jedi mind tricked into following the law. This anti-biblical but very Galatia-like hybrid religion ends up with not only the weight of the Old Testament law placed on the backs of people, but it throws the additional weight of the cross on top. Some look at Jesus' coming to add to what needs to be done to be saved. Believe in him and not only continue to follow the law because he did not come to abolish it, but follow his expanded version of the law. For example, now if you only lust in your heart, you're guilty of committing adultery. It's far easier to sin under Jesus' new guidelines. You need now, under this Judaism 2.0, to be more perfect than ever. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5-7, to and you'll see what I mean. You know, what a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to leave someone with. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount served to make it clear that it's impossible to live according to the law. Not only the word of the law, but the spirit of the law. Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, he said that until the day comes when the earth is destroyed, the law will exist in its entirety. The law will always exist to judge people and find them guilty and condemn them to death, except for one thing. Although the law will always exist and condemn us, Jesus also said that he came to fulfill the law. Well, what does that mean? Jesus fulfilled the law in at least two ways. First, he lived his life perfectly according to the law. He was sinless. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. Secondly, the law requires a death penalty for anyone breaking it. Jesus came to fulfill that requirement. Since he was sinless and undeserving of the death penalty, he was uniquely qualified to serve as the perfect sacrifice for others. He died so that the requirements of the law would be fulfilled. For those that accept his death sacrifice on their behalf, their penalty for breaking the law has been paid. Jesus has fulfilled the law in those two ways. He hasn't laid, Jesus has not laid more rules and burdens on people. He has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for them. The legal standing in the eyes of God for those who accept the sacrifice of Jesus is as if they've never broken a single law. It's because of Jesus' fulfillment of the law that they've been declared righteous. Righteous regardless of their past, their present, or their future transgressions. What Jesus has done has provided the basis for which salvation became possible. It's 
far more than a legal obligation for God to treat us as though we are righteous because of what Jesus accomplished. It's not like a contract we have with God which obligates him to do so. It's only because of his mercy that he chose to make this reconciliation with him possible. Being declared to be in right standing with God requires no religious action. It depends only on your belief in the one who God sent, Jesus, that he fulfilled the requirements of the law on your behalf. It's a genuine miracle if you truly believe that. For it's only because of the Holy Spirit of God has supernaturally called you, given you the eyes to recognize the truth, and has regenerated your spirit that you are able to believe. It's an act of God. One's motivation alone can set a righteous act apart from a self-righteous act. But motivation is only known to God and the individual performing the act. Are the righteous actions you take, or the works you do, a result of your reborn from above spirit simply being who it is inherently is? Or are these actions the result of your desire to want to appear righteous to either God or man? Is it Jesus acting through you, or are you trying to act like Jesus? Works are any actions that take place in the physical world. Works of the law are the same as works of the flesh. Works of the flesh are a result of carnal or human motivation. In Galatians 3, 5, Paul wrote this, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you, which is God, and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul goes on to answer this question that's through belief and not the law or works, that God works in and through the lives of the authentic children of God. Just as the authentic child of God must rely on the gospel for salvation, they must continue to rely on the gospel and not themselves to live a life pleasing to God. The way to rely on the gospel is to do the work of seeking first Jesus' kingdom. After Jesus had been speaking for some time during his Sermon on the Mount, he said this. This is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 to 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The immediate context these two verses in Matthew find themselves in pertains to physical needs of people, food, shelter, and clothing. The greater context of what these verses pertain to is the entire Sermon on the Mount, which has to do with righteous living. How do you live a righteous life? It's not by trying to live more righteous than the Pharisees did through your own efforts. It's only by seeking Jesus and becoming hidden in His righteousness that allows anyone to be declared righteous. Before they were Christians, the Gentiles of Galatia, who Paul was writing, worshipped pagan false gods. Paul tells them that attempting to follow the law, per the instructions of the false teachers they'd been living, listening to, is the same in God's eyes as returning to their practice of worshipping pagan gods. Listen to this. This is what Paul wrote. Indeed, 
when you did not know God, you served gods that by their very nature do not exist. And now, after you have known God, or rather being known by God, why do you turn back again to weak, miserable principles which you desire to again serve? If that sounds familiar, it's because I read it at the beginning of this podcast. That's found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. Well, Paul is not saying here in this passage that he is worried about the Galatians returning to the actual worship of pagan gods once that they once worshipped. He's telling them that adhering to the principles of the Jewish law is the same as adhering to the principles of pagan god worship. Well, regarding this kind of thing, Pastor Earl Craig makes this comment. Like the Jews under strictly the tutelage of the Mosaic Covenant, the Gentiles were not yet heirs of eternal life as they engaged in pagan idolatry and its principles of operation, which are humanly the same as those of the circumcision mindset, the law followers. Committed to making oneself worthy of the God's favor through religious performance. The entire point Paul's making in the book of Galatians is warning them about not adopting a Judeo-Christian law-based hybrid religion, which ends up looking like a cross wrapped in the Talmud. Pastor John Stott equates false gods with following the law when he sums up the Apostle Paul's statement in this way. How can you allow yourself to be enslaved by the very elemental spirits from whom Jesus Christ has rescued you from? Now, this is getting down in the weeds a little bit, but bear with me. The term Paul used in chapter 4, verse 9, which is, quote, weak and miserable principles, unquote, refers to what he called, quote, basic principles of the world, unquote, earlier in verse 3. That phrase is from the Greek, stoikia tu kosmu. It was a phrase that was used in the ancient world to refer to material elements such as fire, water, air, and earth. The term also referred to the pagan belief that the forces of the pagan gods were behind these material things, fire, water, air, and earth, and that those pagan gods controlled people's destinies through those things. Thus, the material things were idolized, worshipped, and prayed to. Paul is making a case that what the Galatians were doing by turning to the physical acts of legalism and self-righteousness was no better than worshiping pagan idols, the weak and miserable principles, the basic principles of the world. The same is true today regarding religious works good Christian church-going people do for the wrong reasons. If you're recognizing that you may have in the past or even now are engaging in what Paul would consider worshiping a false god, it's important to recognize that all is not lost. <laughs> Paul does not appear to be questioning anyone's salvation in his letter to the Galatians. He recognizes that they know God, or more importantly, they are known by God. Because of our lack of wisdom, our knowledge, our spiritual maturity, our understanding, our carnal lusts, and our human finite point of view, we get off track. We sin. We may even create and worship false images of who God is in our minds. But because we are His creation, and like the verse says, are known by God, He knows and understands all of this about us. 
Jesus purchases those who he elected to salvation as is. And because he did, nothing, not even the gates of hell, let alone a demon, can condemn them. That is another big chunk of the good news. Paul directly addresses the teachers that the Galatians had been listening to who were not presenting the true gospel. He lets the Galatians in on the motivation of these teachers. In the end, the teachers wanted to gain the loyalty and admiration of the Galatians. This is what Paul wrote in chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Have I then become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They, the false teachers, fervently court you, but for no good purpose. They want to exclude you, so you will zealously want to follow them. Why do the false teachers want the Galatians to follow them? It's because they're practicing what they preach, a salvation by works doctrine. They're teaching the Galatians the way to salvation is through following the law, doing works. By convincing the Galatians to do so, the false teachers believe they are doing a good work, which in their minds earns them righteousness points with God. Author and pastor Timothy Keller writes the following about this. This means that they, the false teachers, need emotionally to have people who emotionally need them. They need their converts and their disciples to be wrapped up in their leaders, obeying and adoring them. Only this can assure them that they are good and great believers, truly blessed and favored by God. Paul's words, zealous to win you over is a way of saying they, the false teachers, are telling you what you want to hear. They're tickling your ears, pandering to you in order to get your loyalty. The false teachers simply want to be built up by building the Galatians up, not in the gospel, but in pride and self-righteousness. What does it mean that the false teachers wanted to exclude the Galatians? Well, Pastor and writer Earl Craig, in his expository book on Galatians, comments on how being excluded aids the false teachers in achieving their goal. This is what Earl wrote. The promoters of error, the false teachers, are using the strategy of threatening to bar the Galatian believers from participating in the Christian community only so that these believers will feel the pain of being excluded from the group with whom they must desire to be in and thereby be willing to comply with the religious demands of these men. Then, in the final analysis, the goal of these supposed leaders of Christianity, which is characterized not by grace and belief, but by performing religious actions, is to manipulate people into submitting to their leadership, only to build up their egos. They do not really want what's best for the Galatian Gentile Christians, like God's eternal mercy and life. They want to satisfy their own selfish craving for power and by subtly demanding people's loyalty to them. Could these be some of the same motivations and strategies of false teachers today? Paul gives further insight as to the motivation of the false teachers of the first century Galatians in chapter 6. It says this, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, 
only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That's Galatians 6, 12-14. The worst persecution the first century Christians suffered was at the hands of the Jews. Paul himself was a hunter of Christians at one time. The teachers who were urging the Galatians to follow the law and become circumcised were also doing so because they were hoping to avoid such persecution, the persecution for the cross of Christ. They wanted to be able to report back to others that they had convinced the Gentile Christians of Galatia to follow the law, essentially converting them to a hybrid form of Judaism. The only difference between the false teachers of the Galatians and the false teachers of today is that the problem has had 2,000 years to compound. Why does one want to be a priest serving in the temple of a false Christian God? For some, it's because it helps to satisfy their carnal desire to be self-righteous while it feeds their egos and may even provide them with a living wage. For others, at best, it's out of well-intended ignorance. At the end of Galatians chapter 4, Paul utilizes the story of Abraham, his wife Sarah, and her slave Hagar, and their children to illustrate a point. Paul tells us that this story can be taken as an allegory. God, as you may recall, told Abraham that he was going to have a son one day. As Abraham grew old and no son had been born, he decided to take matters in his own hands and uh, help God out in fulfilling his promise by sleeping with his wife's slave, Hagar, with the hopes of impregnating her with a son, just like God said he would have. Abraham's faith in God was suspended as he placed his faith in himself. Abraham did have a son by Hagar. His name was Ishmael. Ishmael is the son who is the result of Abraham taking matters into his own hands rather than simply trusting God. Later, when Abraham was a hundred years old, his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, bore him another son, Isaac. Isaac was the son that God had promised Abraham. Of course, history records ever since Abraham decided to take matters into his own hands, things have been extremely contentious. Abraham's actions are at the root of many of the problems in the Middle East today. Paul compares authentic children of God with Isaac, the child who came about as a result of the promise from God. He equates Christians and false teachers who must take their righteousness into their own hands and follow the law or do good works with Ishmael, the child of the slave who was born according to Abraham's works. Paul tells us that the slave woman and her son will be cast out and not share in God's inheritance with the free woman and her son, who are the authentic children of God. Put even more simply, Hagar and her son represent following a false god and seeking salvation by works, and Sarah represents salvation because of God's grace and mercy. Anything other than relying on God's word results in God's curse. Only reliance on the true gospel will do. Adding to it results in a false gospel. Taking away from it results in a false gospel. Both false gospels represent a false picture of who Jesus is 
and what he did, creating a false Jesus. Circumcision is Paul's shorthand for keeping the law. Keeping the law is equated with doing good works so they can be declared righteous by means of one's own efforts. Paul tells the Galatians that if they think they're doing a good work by keeping the law through getting circumcised, then the work that Jesus did is meaningless for them. It's negated. One must believe in and rely on what Jesus did entirely, or it's the same as not relying on him at all. This is what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. If I attempt to live apart from God's grace by adding to it, then I have indeed fallen from grace. The only thing that can save me if I decide to continue this path is to follow the whole law perfectly, without fail, for the rest of my life. In other words, I am doomed. Paul tells the authentic children of God to walk in the Spirit in order to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is what he says in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Tell me something. Exactly what physical action is it that you are supposed to do when you are walking in the Spirit? Paul has just spent four and a half chapters worth of his letter to the Galatians making the case that there is no physical action you can take to justify yourself. Why now? Would anyone think that walking in the Spirit, according to Paul, has anything to do with some physical, fleshy action? Yet, many twist the meaning of walking in the Spirit into something to do with doing good works. That which is Spirit is Spirit. It cannot be observed with the natural senses. It's not something you can do with your flesh. That which is flesh is flesh. Works of the flesh involve any action that's taken in the physical realm. Attempting to follow the law is an act of the flesh. Traditional Christians normally associate the purposeful living of a pious moral life under one's own efforts as good. It's good to be a pious person. However, such a pursuit, according to Paul, is just the opposite. If it's of your flesh, you're trying to do this on your own, and it's not just inherent to who you are and who God has made you. Let me put it that way. But if it's purposeful for you to do this, right? Purposefully trying to be pious and moral, and you think that's good. That's what I'm talking about here. But these are works of the flesh, and these works of the flesh are equated with a long list 
of bad things. Listen to how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousness, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who participate in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. None of these things found on this list of works of the flesh are any better than the others. Maybe the one who seeks to follow the law is not murdering people or getting drunk or committing adultery or other such overt, even criminal behaviors. However, those who seek to fulfill the law or do good works who are under the influence of their own self-righteous motivations are still committing some of the works of the flesh found on Paul's list. Heresy, selfish ambition, and idolatry, just to list three of them. Paul's message is consistent throughout his letter to the Galatians. He's not shifting in reverse here and saying that it's all about walking in the Spirit by doing good works in your flesh. He's saying that doing good works in your flesh can be equated to that long list of bad, nasty stuff that I just read if your motivation is to make yourself righteous. It's just something, those things are all bad, and it's good to do the opposite of them. But it's only considered acts of righteousness if Jesus is doing it through you, if it is inherently a part of who you have become, and not because you are trying to make this effort on your own. Fruit appears on the vine not as a result of any conscious action of the plant. Fruit appears on a plant just because that's what God created the plant to do. It's no coincidence that Paul chose the word fruit to describe what happens in the life of an authentic child of God. This is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. The things found on this fruit list (laughs) will happen, not through the conscious efforts of the authentic child of God, but because of simply being an authentic child of God. Yet, sermon after sermon is designed to encourage Christians to purposefully act in a way that display these fruits. You know, you're told to act like it. You may as well tell a kiwi tree to produce an orange. The tree will continue to produce whatever fruit God created it to produce, regardless of what you tell it to produce. When a Christian, at the encouragement of their pastor or on their own, attempts to imitate the fruits of the Spirit, they're engaging in a work of the flesh. They are acting under their own power to engage in righteous behavior. Maybe it's because a pastor has guilted them into it. Maybe it's because they want to appear righteous and squared away to others. Maybe it's because they want to be pleasing to the false god of piety. Whatever the reason, imitating the fruits of the Spirit is opposite of walking in the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit represent a list of good 
and right behaviors and motivations. The things in the list will come naturally to the authentic child of God because they represent the right thing to do and what is the, it's what the reborn spirit desires to do. Of course, you'll still screw up and you have bad days and, and your flesh gets in the way. Whatever, whatever the motivation, the entire world benefits when even the counterfeit child of God emulates having the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. However, like the authentic child of God, the fruits of the Spirit, whether they're real or counterfeit, don't make anyone righteous. They don't make the child of God righteous. Only having the Son makes somebody righteous. Well, how then does one walk in the Spirit? Time's not going to allow it here. I'm probably already going to go long. But a review of the book of Romans chapter 8 is very informative on this topic. I encourage you to look closely at that passage. Walking in the Spirit is not an act of the flesh. There's nothing you can do physically outside of the realm of your belief, your faith. Belief in Jesus and continued reliance upon Him for your salvation and sanctification is walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit does not require climbing into your prayer closet. You don't need to have daily devotionals and journal. You don't need to tithe or even attend church. All these things may be okay, but not if you're doing them because you think your relationship with God depends on them. Galatians 5.5 says this, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We, who have hope, are to eagerly wait on Jesus to do His work in us. We're appointed to walk in His good works. Waiting on Jesus is part of walking in the Spirit. We are to have a confident expectation, hope, that He will do what He said He would do. This hope is grounded in our belief. Rather than to take matters into our own hands like Abraham did when he slept with his wife's slave girl, we're to trust in and wait on God. Trust and hope are a part of walking in the Spirit. It's easy to panic or get impatient and want to help along our desire for righteousness in the sight of God. To our human minds, which experience says, there is no such thing as a free lunch, it's all up to me. Simply waiting on God to do something that sounds too good to be true is counterintuitive. Walking in the Spirit is to purposefully not rely on the works of our flesh to improve our relationship with God. This takes discipline. In this way, it's to put to death the things of the flesh, like Romans 8.13 says. Actively avoiding the law or works of the flesh to take the place of what Jesus has done and is doing could be the hardest part of walking in the Spirit. It means we must believe in and trust God's Word. It means that we'll believe in God's grace alone. It means we're going to wait on Jesus. It's to stay always mindful of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Walking in the Spirit includes constantly humbling oneself to the point where they can allow Jesus to wash his or her feet. What a shocking thought. Peter had the same reaction when he told Jesus that he wouldn't allow him to wash his feet. Yet, if you won't allow Jesus to clean the filth from your feet, 
How can you allow him to clean the filth from your life that you trudge through every day? There's nothing you can do to remove the filth. To attempt to do so would be an act of your flesh. Walking in the Spirit means to be spiritually minded and includes setting your mind and affection on the things above rather than on the things of this earth and what you can do in this earth. Walking in the Spirit in these ways will result in God producing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. None of these things have anything to do with you lifting a finger to obtain right standing with God. All these things rely solely on the work of Jesus. Any authentic, true righteousness that we will ever experience will only come through living and walking in the Spirit. Remember, if you're doing that, if you're relying on your righteousness to be in right standing with God, you're doing so to please a false God who requires that of you, not the authentic God who wants you to rely only on His Son. So if Christians are not to purposefully set out to do good works, to impress, persuade, or be in right standing with God, won't that lead to mayhem? <laughs> if Christians don't follow the long list of rules contained in the Bible under the law, what will keep people from sinning? Before one and after is reborn as an authentic child of God, they were and continue to be a human being. All human beings, self-centered as they are, inherently know right from wrong. They inherently can tell good from evil, and they know that they're supposed to be good. Yet they continually choose not to be good. C.S. Lewis called this the law of nature. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote this. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature and they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Even before there was a Mosaic law, the Bible informs us that ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, people have inherently known the difference between doing good and doing evil, and that they should try to do good. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. The first person to be naturally born rather than be created was Cain. In the following passage, God is speaking to Cain as though he is very aware of the difference between doing good and evil. Cain knew why he should do good, and he knew he had the choice to do good or to sin. This is from Genesis chapter uh, 4, verse 6 to 7. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. We all know that being moral and showing love to others is the right and good thing to do. Just because authentic children of God are not saved by following the Mosaic law, it does not relieve them 
of their God-given human responsibility to do what they know to be right and moral. Freedom from the law does not mean you are free from acting according to what C.S. Lewis calls the law of nature. It means that your eternal status will not be determined according to the Mosaic law. It will be determined according to belief in the one whom God sent, Jesus. An authentic child of God may break a law of nature or Mosaic law. They, in fact, overlap in many cases. And it won't make any difference as to their righteousness in the sight of God. They are no less saved when they break the natural law. Nothing will keep anyone from sinning. But besides knowing that they should do right, because every human knows that, what will keep an authentic child of God from wanting to sin is the Holy Spirit who lives inside the authentic child of God. Specifically, it's the fruits of the Holy Spirit. When an authentic child of God is walking and living in the Spirit, that same Spirit causes his children to take actions, like live their life, out of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are all known as the fruits of the Spirit. All of this takes place without any external guilt or instruction being laid on the authentic child of God. This is not to say that an authentic child of God will not sin. They will clearly battle sin until the day they die. But even when they do sin, it's not counted against them. On the other hand, although those who are counterfeit Christians may in fact benefit from repetitious sermons pertaining to moral behavior in this world, like it may keep them out of jail and get them invited over for dinner, it won't benefit them in the least in eternity. Their pious, legalistic, self-righteous behavior will be held against them as much as their law-breaking will be when they are raised from the dead to face their judgment. Living morally is just the right thing to do. But when moral living becomes the end goal of a Christian, it becomes a false God. Seeking Jesus and His righteousness, becoming dependent on Him and what He did, is how an authentic child of God begins to walk in the Spirit. The end for the authentic child of God is to know Jesus and His righteousness better. Relying only on Jesus and His righteousness is the only means to the end. It begins and ends with Him. In between is only Jesus. A byproduct of walking in the Spirit in this way are the fruits of the Spirit and moral behavior. Sometimes Christians seek advice because they can't feel the presence of God, or they feel like something is standing between themselves and God. I have often heard pastors offer advice on how to remedy this and how to break through and improve one's relationship with God. Typically, the advice is either to engage in a list of behaviors like personal Bible study, prayer, journaling, church attendance, small group attendance, you know, those kind of things. Or it's to deal with hidden sin in one's life. I have heard the following advice given from the pulpit many times. What is it in your life that God wants you to give up? Perhaps it's a bad habit. Perhaps 
it's an attitude in your heart. If there's sin in your life that you're not dealing with or unrepentant of, it's difficult, if not impossible, to approach a holy God. I'm hoping by now you recognize that this is the opposite of what Paul is teaching in his letter to the Galatians. The solution is not to focus on one's behavior to attain righteousness and right standing with God. The solution is to place one's focus on believing in Jesus and seeking His righteousness. The solution is to walk in the Spirit and not to focus on your flesh and getting it under control. My advice to people when they're dealing with a sin in their life that they believe is standing between them and God would be to stop focusing on the behavior and start focusing on Jesus. A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is a byproduct of walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is not acting according to your own flesh's desire, even if that desire is masked as doing good. There are many other reasons to modify one's behavior and act morally, to keep one's family or job, to be a productive pro-social member of society, to keep friends and not to wear an ankle bracelet and report to your probation officer once a month. Good behavior truly is its own reward. Do good because it's the right thing to do. These are acceptable motivations for wanting to behave well. But Paul tells us that it is never okay to try and replace what Jesus did for us on the cross with our feeble attempts at self-righteousness. When most who study Galatians or preach or teach through it, they reach chapter 6, they shift gears. It's, it's odd. Some say, well, since we're nearing the end of the letter, Paul must be taking the opportunity to do some housekeeping and address a few miscellaneous items before he closes. All sorts of detached, half-baked doctrines result. Yet, Paul did not change his attention at all at the end of the book of Galatians. Paul continued to be focused on false teachers and what they taught relating to the law, as opposed to walking in the Spirit. There's no reason to think that the following scripture I'm going to read has anything to do with something other than what Paul has been talking about in the preceding five chapters. Not just any transgression, but the transgression of following the law, rather than walking in the Spirit. Paul was not encouraging anyone to micromanage sin in other people's lives. Why would he do so after making a case for not living according to the law? Following the law is the transgression that has so far been the main theme in the entire book of Galatians. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1-2. to Brothers, if a man is overtaken by transgression, you, who are spiritual, strengthen that person in the spirit of humility, lest you might also be tempted, bearing one another's troubles to fulfill the law of the Messiah. The law of the Messiah, or the law of Christ, is not the law of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law. The law of Christ is believing, trusting, and relying on Jesus and walking in the Spirit. To fulfill the law of the Messiah is to put the law of the Messiah into practice. Walk in the Spirit. 
while guarding against practicing the Mosaic Law. Seek the righteousness of Jesus, not one's self-righteousness. Those who were falling into the trap of following the law and those who were teaching them to do so were the transgressors who Paul was referring to. Verses 3 to 5 in chapter 6 pertain to being introspective regarding walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. One must police themselves in this effort. Then comes verse 6, a possible favorite of paid pastors. <laughs> Let the one who has taught the Word communicate all good things with the one who teaches. That's Galatians 6, 6. One of the most common interpretations of this verse is that Paul is putting in a plug to compensate those who teach within the church. Whenever you study the question of whether pastors should be paid, this is always a verse that is singled out. That's because rather than considering everything that leads up to this verse and everything that follows, they pull this verse out of context. It's randomly left to stand on its own. It's such a common misuse of Scripture that even the famous reformer Martin Luther thought this verse was about paying pastors. In Luther's commentary on Galatians 6.6, he wrote this, In the papacy, I saw the people give generously for the erection and maintenance of luxurious church buildings and for the sustenance of men appointed to the idolatrous service of Rome. I saw bishops and priests grow rich until they possessed the choicest real estate. I thought then that Paul's admonitions were overdone. I thought he should have requested the people to curtail their contributions. I know better now. Luther goes on to say that the problem in Galatia must have been that they weren't paying their pastors enough, and that's why false teachers were coming in. Hmm. He writes that Satan is responsible for curtailing pastors' income so much that they can't live by the gospel. And without ministers to proclaim the word of God, the people will go wild like savage beasts. Those are his words. Many paid pastors would agree with Martin Luther. I don't. Money has had nothing to do with the first five chapters of the book of Galatians. Money continues to have nothing to do with the book of Galatians in chapter 6. The base of the word translated as share in English is from the Greek word koinonos. It means to distribute, to be a partaker with, or participate with, or have fellowship with, or communicate with someone. Here, the best way to translate this word is probably communicate, because it's information Paul is speaking of that he wants shared, not a material good, not money. Why, when the entire rest of the letter of Galatians has discredited the teachers and teaching they have received, would Paul be saying, oh yeah, and don't forget to pay them? Or even if Paul was referring to himself being paid, justifying why he should be paid, why would he be randomly throwing this third person statement in? Like, I know you may not be following what I taught you when I was there, and your new teachers say that I don't know what I'm talking about, but don't forget to send me money. Well, neither of these things fit at all. Such, inter such interpretations are just, they're silly. 
And it doesn't fit that money is the good thing that Paul is writing about. Remember, the love of money is the root of all evil. And you can't serve two masters, God and money. Money is not suddenly, out of nowhere, the good thing that Paul is referring to. What does fit is that Paul is asking the Galatians to do what he just said. Those who are spiritually minded, the ones who get what Paul's talking about, need to restore their false teaching brothers by communicating the good things Paul is saying in the letter he wrote them. The good thing is the gospel of grace Paul has been writing about. The easiest way that would have been accomplished was by sharing or communicating Paul's letter directly with the false teachers and those who were following the false teaching. Moreover than that is it's more simply just saying to share in the things that they are being taught by good teachers. Share with those who are teaching with you. Fall in line with what they are teaching if they are good teachers. That's communicating. That's fellowshipping in the truth of the gospel with them. The gospel being the good thing, not money. Well, verse 7 goes right back on to talking about the the law versus walking in the Spirit. Why would suddenly we have a, a, you know, a micro passage about money and paying pastors in the middle of that? As a side note, I can tell you, you know, with a, with a high degree of confidence and certainty that no one was getting paid for preaching in Paul's day. No one. There were uh, traveling evangelists that were being supported by some churches, but there was not even the role of what we think of as a preacher now. That's a whole other big topic, and we'll talk about that in the future. Anyway, verse 7 goes right back to talking about following the law versus walking in the Spirit. The explanation of verse 6 that we just talked about fits in context perfectly. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's Galatians 6, verses 7 to 8. This is as though Paul is saying, Don't get me wrong. Despite your efforts to restore your brothers, God won't be made a fool of. Those who are living by the flesh will still be judged according to the laws of the flesh. In other words, if false teachers continue to teach the law, they have no part in Christ and will be judged according to the law, as will all those who follow their teaching. The advice Paul gives in the book of Galatians on what to do about the problem of Christians who are living according to the law and not walking in the Spirit is instructive to us today. We're to attempt to restore them to walking in the Spirit by sharing with them the good things that Paul shared about. The gospel. Not just the part of the gospel about becoming initially saved by Jesus, but the part of the gospel that applies for the rest of the authentic child of God's natural life. Reliance on Jesus every hour of every day to do His work in us, to lead us, to change us, not by our efforts, but by His. Well, in summary, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in the region of Galatia was a cohesive, focused message 
and not a series of many disjointed teachings. Paul's main message was that of relying on the good news that the grace which comes through the authentic belief in Jesus is not only sufficient for one's salvation, but that to add anything to it is to nullify it. Paul wrote that when one tries to add anything to what Jesus has already done, it's as if they're worshiping a false god, a god that needs our help. Paul likened the authentic child of God to the children of the promise, those who are like Abraham's son Isaac, who was a child which came about as a result of waiting on God. This rather than Abraham taking matters into his own hands, which resulted in another son being born through having sex with his wife's handmaid. Reliance on God to do his work brings about true fruits of the Spirit. Paul encouraged the Galatians to share this message with those who are preaching another version of the gospel, the false gospel of assisting God with one's salvation. Today, it's extremely common to hear the gospel of assisting God with one's salvation being preached in evangelical and mainline churches. The God of the Bible does not need our assistance. Only false gods welcome such efforts. Connected to this message are what I call Christian Jedi mind tricks, techniques designed to persuade people in the place of the work of the Holy Spirit. That, Lord willing, is the topic of our next episode. And until then, hey, don't forget to write, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.